0: Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline podcast. Mastery and the Minimum Effective Dose. Let me tell you a story. Years ago, I got interested in the idea of psychoactives, plant-based substances that alter consciousness perception, they get you high. I'm talking about stuff like ayahuasca, DMT, psilocybin. This was years ago. I was really into black-and-white photography, and I had a sort of photography mentor at the time. I had read every interview that I could find that he'd uh, um, participated in, seen a lot of his work, and, and he gave a workshop in Portland, Oregon, and I was like, i gotta, I got to go to this workshop. This is amazing. I get to spend some time with um, someone I looked up to and wanted to learn from, so I was in. And uh, at some point during the workshop, he mentioned that, also years ago for him, part of what he felt like had contributed to his, um, let's call it his journey in photography, was doing some high-dosage LSD experiments, where he, I don't know, I he had an exact number. It was something like, uh, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 high-dose LSD experiences, and he thought this had um, been beneficial. That got me interested. <laughs> I read a lot, read stuff like The Doors of Perception, uh, came across this site. I have no idea if it's still around, Arrowid. came across the, um, I'm not sure whether to say thinking or ranting or what, of Terence McKenna, stuff like that, I educated myself. I got interested in doing something about this. The idea of of something like LSD just terrified me frankly it was um, you know something you could only buy illegally from uh, pretty unknown sources, and so that was a big nope. but the idea of things like ayahuasca dmT psilocybin. These plant-derived substances, uh, some of which you could just grow yourself, uh, fascinated me. Homebrewing was an option um, with, like, you know, simple DMT extraction methods. Do-it-yourself stuff has always appealed to me. So I was at that point committed. That's when the idea of LD50 became (laughs) important to me. LD50 refers to um, the the dosage of something. It could be anything. It could be water. Recently, I uh, came across a, um, st- a story or a news report or something. I don't think this happened recently. I just came across the article recently about a woman who died, overdosed from drinking water. She was participating in some sort of radio station contest to see how much water you could drink, and then how long you could go before you had to urinate. And she, uh, a day or two later, died from, um, at least as the article described it, it was an overdose of water. So everything has a level at which, you know, it can become fatal, even beneficial things are beneficial in smaller doses like water. LD50 is the dosage at which a substance is going to be fatal to 50% of the test population. So in, you know, in medicine or, you know, in illegal experimentation with psychoactive substances, this idea is important. Um, You know, for better or for worse, LD50 is derived from uh, animal testing in labs. And I became interested in this idea of... LD50 because I was about to put some stuff in my body that I had no experience with, and I wanted to know where that red line was. I, I mean, I would prefer to know where the LD1% is, you know, the, the dosage at which it's, you know, even po- remotely possible that someone would die. But again, in the uh, literature out there, there's an LD50, and every substance has it. So this idea of an LD50 is related to another concept, which is more to the point of today's um, audio essay, which is the idea of a minimum effective dose. And this is defined as MD50 and MD95. So an MD50 is the dosage of something at which it has a therapeutic effect for 50%, or in the case of MD95, 95% of the test population. And this is an important idea. Maybe I can illustrate it a little bit by telling you about this. Watching me play pool or billiards or whatever you want to call it is hilarious because I do that activity. I won't even call it a sport because I'm I'm terrible at it. I do that activity with zero finesse. I do it very badly. So I set up a, a shot. Is that what you call it? I smack the cue ball as hard as possible with the stick. I'm not trying to, you know, make it fly off the table, but it just feels satisfying to hit it really hard, and some very seldom actually (laughs) see the ball that I'm trying to get in a pocket actually end up there. It's fun for me to do this, but it actually makes me very bad at pool, and I don't care. I don't want to be good at pool. I have no desire to. If I'm roped into playing pool, I don't want to win. I don't care about winning. I don't care about being good. I just want to have fun while I'm doing it. And so for me, what's fun is smacking the hell out of the cue ball with the cue stick. This is the anti-mastery position. This is me saying, I don't care about mastery in this activity. I just want to hit it as hard as possible. Because for me, I don't know, it's the sound... Um it's you know, seeing things scatter on the table, it's 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 a sort of um, you know, chaotic, neutral kind of impulse. It's just that's what's fun for me, not actually winning the game. So I think of this as a sort of anti mastery position. Picture this. You're in a little bit of pain in your mouth, one of your something's wrong with one of your teeth. Now you're sitting in the dentist's chair. They've made x rays. The dentist is there probing around inside of your mouth, tapping on things, scraping things, making one-sided conversation with you. You've got this mouthful of hardware and tubes making sucking noises, and they say, yep, looks like you've got a cavity here, a uh, molar number seven or whatever. Looks like it's about a millimeter long by half a millimeter deep, and you know, I think... The only way we can know for sure that this is not going to develop into something worse is just pull the whole tooth right out. I think you're going to say next, um, okay, get your hand out of my mouth, (laughs) and wow, you must not have been doing this for very long because it seems like a real expert, or even a competent dentist would have a range of options for dealing with this. Seems to me like at least one of those options would be just to drill out the affected area Fill it in. What do you think about that option? So this illustrates what I believe we expect from a real expert. We expect a range of options, and one of those at least, would be just enough corrective action, no overkill, no resulting collateral damage, not pulling the tooth and saying, well, we got rid of the problem because we pulled the tooth not smacking the cue ball as hard as humanly possible, but instead the real expert's going to have enough data points over a long enough period of time to know how much of the remedy is just enough to achieve the desired change. In other words, they're going to know what the minimum effective dose is of change or corrective action or let's put this in um, software development or IT terms. How much infrastructure is enough? How many instances on AWS do we need to spin up in order to meet, you know, our, our service goals or our responsiveness goals? Um, you know, how heavily do we need to engineer this piece of software? All that stuff, all these little nuanced judgment calls about how much is enough, I think are part of it, one of the hallmarks of expertise. Humans and organizations have a real limited ability to change. There are limits to how fast we can change, limits how, to how dramatically we can move from one point to another. I know this might sound like you know, I'm talking to management consultants who are dealing with uh, people change or organizational structure change. But anything you build, be it software or marketing or design, may create some form of change. Just because the change is meant to be positive does not make it possible to exceed the amount or speed of change that a person or company can handle. I think about this a lot in my work because I'm trying to help my clients change. And the kinds of changes I'm focused on are big, meaningful changes. So I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the minimum effective dose of change for each client that I'm working with is. And that that's different based on who they are and where they're coming from and their background and all of that. So if I could just snap my cha- my fingers and instantly create the kind of change that each of my clients wants, that would seem to be wonderful. But number one, I can't. And number two, I'm not convinced that the change would stick for them, that it would be durable and persistent. Some of the change that happens when you make that decision to specialize and you follow through on it and then you try to figure out how to develop uh, leads the way that a specialist does. Some of that changes about your habits and your abilities and things that are a lot about you as a person. And you know, just like lottery winners rarely maintain their suddenly acquired wealth, I'm not sure a solo business owner or principal of a small firm would be able to maintain a suddenly better business that I had created just by snapping my fingers, I don't think they could maintain that if they're not personally involved in making it better what might seem like the hard way, which is by changing what they do and to an extent changing who they are. So I think about change for most folks as a series of minimum effective doses of change applied sequentially over time. May not be the same medicine each time, it's not the same dose each time, but each time it's administered in terms of thinking of that minimum effective dose and how that's going to contribute to sustainable positive change. Let me throw out for you a minimum effective dose of change that you might consider for yourself. And here we're getting out of the territory of me knowing you and your specific situation and into the territory of me broadcasting something that I think might be a good idea for a group of people. So forgive the fact that I can't tailor or fine-tune this just to you. Also, there's a caveat here. This is not for established experts. Doing what I'm about to suggest would uh, portray them in the wrong light and send the wrong signals to clients, unfortunately. So here's a potential minimum effective dose of change for, let's say, the up-and-coming expert. I call this the diagnostic call to action. So if you look at most uh, websites for professional services firms, not all of them, but I think most of them, they're going to fit this following pattern. You'll see some sort of contact form, and the purpose of that form is to encourage someone who's interested in getting into maybe a sales conversation to reach out to the firm or to the person. That form usually says something like, you know, contact us, reach out to us, um, inquire about a project, get an estimate, um, something like that. Those are all the usual suspects that you see. And the form itself is basically saying that's what's going to happen when you fill out the form is you're going to contact us and we'll just figure it out from there. Is That's the implication. Nothing inherently wrong with this, but I want to propose an alternate approach to that, which I call the diagnostic call to action. That form is a call to action, a CTA. That form is saying, take some action. So that's what makes it a CTA. And the diagnostic CTA takes a, a different approach. So the diagnostic CTA says, fill out this form and uh we will schedule a a diagnostic session the cost is likely to be zero dollars to the the potential client and again that's part of why i say this is only for up and coming experts people who are more established as experts don't they just don't have to do that they don't have to give away their time that way they might choose to but if they do that on their website it is makes them look like they're not busy makes them look like they're not in demand and That's, um, whether that's true or not, it's just not a good look for an expert. So the diagnostic CTA has an agenda right there um, adjacent to the form. So the agenda, it says, if you fill this form out, obviously, you know, pending that it's a good fit and some other things, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it says if, if you fill this form out, you're taking the first step, towards scheduling a diagnostic session with me. And that could be a 30-minute session. If you need more time, then you would allocate more time. If you need less time, you would allocate less time. But let's just imagine that it's a 30-minute session. And the form is the first step towards that. But unlike that sort of general purpose contact form, this one has an agenda right there in, you know, adjacent to the form. You're saying, if you fill this form out, you're, you're sort of requesting a structured diagnostic. And what the diagnostic would be around, I don't know, that depends on you and your business. It let, Let's put it in terms of my business. That's at least a business I know very well. So I might, I, in fact, I have done this in the past, um, I might offer a lead generation diagnostic. So let's say that I want to talk to prospective clients who feel like their lead generation is not as good as it could be. So they are aware that they have a problem, and they're not aware of how to solve it exactly. They're aware that there hopefully is a solution. They just don't know what the solution looks like. So they're problem aware. And they see this form on my website that says, uh, have a free lead generation diagnostic. In 30 minutes, if we get together and we do it in a, you know, real-time fashion— I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to ask about the three things that I think are critical to effective lead generation to figure out whether you're doing any or all of those three things. And I'm going to ask about some numbers. And based on what you tell me, I'm going to ask a few more questions about who you are as a person. And then I'm going to figure out at in a rough, high-level way, what it might take for you to get better at generating leads. And I'm going to offer some recommendations right there on the phone. And, you know, if it makes sense for us to move into a conversation about me helping you do that stuff by giving you advice, by being there for you every week in a coaching call or whatever it is, then we'll have that conversation too. So that's essentially what I'm saying happens when you fill this form out. And I might... um I might not want to have my entire schedule dominated by people taking me up on this offer, so I might limit it to X number of these calls per month or something like that. That's the diagnostic CTA. And what this does is, again, not really for the established expert. This is more basic. This is not something they would want to do. But for the up-and-coming expert. This gets you used to conducting a separate formal diagnostic process. Maybe you're doing that already, maybe you're not. This is a way to start getting better at that in a low-stakes situation. It helps you start maybe seeing value in the diagnosis process itself. Maybe you just think that that's something that's not very valuable and nobody would ever pay for that. Well, the evidence of people filling out a form and paying 30 minutes of their time to do that is the first tiny little step towards seeing value in that diagnosis. This diagnostic CTA also helps you get better at asking questions that are of a diagnostic nature, again, in a low-stakes situation. you know, Imagine that you have a signed contract with a, a client, and they've agreed to pay you to do something. And then you start getting into uh, the work and all of a sudden you've got all these questions and you're afraid that, you know, one or more of those questions, if it was honestly asked and honestly answered by the client, it might actually torpedo the project. Earlier on, I think for all of us, we do this work that I might describe as ready fire aim where there's not proper planning at the outset, this is very easy, as my uh, friend and colleague Jonathan Stark points out, very, very pointedly and very over and over again. It's very easy to do this when you're billing hourly because all the risk is on the client to do the planning. You're just billing hours, and if they screw it up, that's actually good for you because it you know makes the project more expensive for them, but it also puts more money in your pocket. I know that's a bit of an oversimplification, but uh, bear with me. So what if you're in a project and you've done this, you know, ready, fire, aim thing and you're billing hourly and you're afraid that a question you want to ask would shut the project down because it so threatens or so um, reveals the lack of planning or undermines the planning that the client thought that they were doing the right way but weren't doing the right way? Would you ask that question? That's an example of a high-stakes situation in which to ask diagnostic questions. I think it's better, if you've never done this before or if you're not very practiced at it, to start in a low-stakes situation. And the lowest possible-stakes situation, I think, is this diagnostic CTA. Maybe what would be a lower-stakes conversation is um, practicing these kind of diagnostic questions on uh, someone, like a friend, who is in the kind of business where they might potentially be a client, you could try them out in that, and that might be even lower stakes. But pretty low stakes is you didn't charge, you know, you're not paying anything except your time for this diagnostic session, and I'm going to practice getting better at asking the kind of questions that help me figure out what's really going on and get, get to the heart of the matter. Finally, it's not an exhaustive list, but having a diagnostic CTA starts to help get you out of the, quote, order-taker mindset. So an order-taker is, hey, my rate is this. You tell me what to do. I'll be happy to do it. Or I might not be happy to do it, but I'll be happy to bill you to do it. That's the order-taker mindset. I'm not trying to insult that. I did that for a long time. I think a lot of us start out there. So that mindset in a call with a prospect is going to be sort of like you sitting up straight and uh, paying attention and taking good notes and basically saying, well, what do you want to do here? And the purpose of your inquiry is to figure out a scope for the project. Well, what if this project is going to be guaranteed to be a huge boondoggle that wastes the client lots of money? Is it ethical for you to do that if you know that? Um, I remember explicitly (laughs) in my own career trying to not know that. Because it might threaten, you know, this opportunity that I felt like was very scarce and rare, the opportunity to get a new client. So that's the order-taking mindset. And when you start doing a diagnostic CTA and you start actually having people ask for that diagnostic session, it starts putting you in the driver's seat. You set the agenda for that conversation, for that diagnostic session, you decide what gets talked about. And, of course, there's going to be some freedom to explore different directions, but you set the basic agenda. And that's starting to build a skill of leadership in the sales conversation, leadership in engagements with clients. And, again, it's starting to build that skill in a nice low-stakes situation. That's my, my case in short form for the diagnostic CTA as a minimum effective dose of change for those of you that are kind of currently just because maybe you're a little bit new at this or maybe it's just where you're at in your career, you're in that order-taker mindset, and you've never really probed deeper about why something is happening in a project, consider taking that generic contact form on your website and turning it into a diagnostic CTA. bit of an epilog Terence McKenna is definitely the flavor flavor of philosophy